This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II radio podcast. Today we have the February 28th, 1943 edition of CBS World News Today. It includes updates on the war from Algiers, Honolulu, London, Tunisia, the Aberdeen Proving Ground, Washington, and New York. The World War II radio podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. World News Today, brought to you by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast direct from important overseas stations, as well as the leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's Doug Edwards with a summary of headline news. Allied forces have repulsed a new Axis attack in northern Tunisia, and they've captured hundreds of enemy troops as well. The Germans issue optimistic claims on the Russian fighting, reporting the recapture of two strategic strong points. Moscow maintains the Red Army is pushing westward. RAF planes have rounded out a month of heavy assaults by bombing targets in western Germany. And the Navy reports further success by American bombers in the southwest Pacific. For our first report from overseas, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Algiers, Charles Collingwood reporting. This is Charles Collingwood in North Africa. Today's communique from Allied Force Headquarters tells of more German attacks along a wide front in the northern part of Tunisia. Down in the south, Rommel is still falling back from Kasserine Pass, and everywhere, Allied air forces are striking at the enemy. Our air power in this campaign is one of the sources of our strength. For many of the American pilots, at least, this is their first taste of actual operations. But they're doing a magnificent job. I have one of our pilots here beside me tonight. His name is Bill Sloan, Dixie Sloan. He comes from Richmond, Virginia. He's 22 years old, and his comrades say he's a born pursuit pilot. He flew his first combat mission less than two months ago, and today, in Axis planes destroyed, he is the second-ranking fighter pilot in the North African theater of war. You shot down five German planes, haven't you, Dixie? Yes, that's right, but I don't think that's an important. Well, I do. Why not? It's a squadron's record that counts. It's a squadron that shoots down the planes. Nobody goes around shooting down Messerschmitt's about inside rules, babe. If you didn't have buddies that uh, up in here, you'd be full of holes in 20 seconds. I guess you've got a pretty good squadron, man. We've got a swell squadron. I think it's the best squadron in North Africa. Now, who do you think is responsible for that? Everyone is. It's all cool, man. That's a little secret. Colonel William Covington of North Carolina is the group commander. Major Oliver of Oklahoma is our own squadron commander. They have a lot to do with us being a good squadron. We know the ground crew. And finally the pilot. 
Here's Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. When U.S. naval guns were raised at Casablanca, their target was a Jean Bar, a French battleship. Two salvos were fired. The hull of a Jean Bar was smashed. The miracle of that engagement is this. The American guns were 26 miles from their target. The American crew could not possibly have seen the Jean Bar, for she was far beyond the horizon, yet they knew exactly where she was. Their knowledge was obtained by using one of the many different electronic instruments now in service with our Navy. Every hour of every day, these electronic instruments, many of them built by Admiral, are performing miracles for the United States Army and Navy. Admiral was chosen to build such equipment solely on the basis of its ability to produce the best and its capacity to produce the huge amounts needed by the Army and Navy. Admiral's ability to produce the best originated in pre-war days, when its production lines turned out the Admiral Radio, America's smart set. Admiral has the capacity to produce the huge amounts needed because America appreciates Admiral quality. This appreciation made Admiral in peacetime the world's largest manufacturer of radio phonograph combinations with automatic record changers. Now, with ability and capacity, plus the zeal of its workers, Admiral is serving America's fighting men on the front line by building radio and electronic equipment which is helping them defeat the enemy and bring a return of the blessings of peace. Now, here once again is Doug Edwards. American planes and ships continue to hunt down the enemy throughout the Pacific. For a direct report on the latest developments in this war zone, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Honolulu, Webley Edwards reporting. Pacific stepped up again this week with raids on four successive nights on Rabao and New Britain Island and clock-like raids on Jap-held bases in the Upper Solomons. Smashing in Mundo on New Georgia, Icy and Buena on Bougainville, Vila on Colombangara, and Raquetta Bay on Santa Isabel. Also at Gothmata Airdrome down the coast from Rabao. A surprise attack on the Kai Islands north of Australia. And at Cork Farm on Timor of the Dutch East Indies. There was one raid as far north as the Admiralty Islands. On New Guinea, there were raids by American and Aussie planes at Mugu, Lae, and Salamab. The Japs made nuisance raids on us at Port Mosby, the practice at Tulagi, and made their second raid of war on Asperta Santo in the Hebrides. The record shows considerable damage by our raids, little or no damage done to us by the Jap raids. Many of these names will sound strange and may mean little to you. They mean a great deal in the Pacific. Each is a strong point for us, or the enemy, in this far-flung battlefront. 
Around this Pacific War, what Oyel or what Starfire to the Russian front? Or Tunis or Brazoria on the African front? Each point controls hundreds, even thousands of square miles of area, and our object must be not only to capture them to use against the enemy, but also to keep him from using them against us and our supply lines. We can now hit at the Jap Islands all the way from Timur and the Dutch East Indies through New Guinea, the Bismarck Archipelago, to and beyond the Solomons. And we have been hitting him with Admirals Nimitz and Halsey and General MacArthur getting great results with their oil power, which, while stronger than it was, is still limited. Nevertheless, we are finding the Jap bases regularly, and it must have the Jap worried. For there's a feeling in the air that the United States Pacific Fleet will not stand idly by in the South Pacific, that our raids on the widespread Jap bases may be for more than just to hold him down, possibly as a means of keeping his strength scattered while we are preparing for another powerful punch by Halsey's ships, planes, and guns. There is right now the making of an epical naval battle. At the time the Japs were pulling out of Guadalcanal, we had the largest fleet ever assembled by the United States, ready, willing, and able. That fleet was trying to get the Japs into fighting position, but Halsey couldn't provoke them into the major battle that he wanted. It was strategy on the Japs' part not to fight, for our Pacific fleet probably would have taken the Jap fleet. But do not mistake that Jap reticence for weakness. They are powerful with lots of ships and planes. Heretofore, though, they have come out and after the target, and we accepted the invitation each time winning. Now they seem to have decided to hold back, perhaps forcing us to show ourselves in a disadvantageous position. That makes a sparring match out of the current naval action thus far. But Halsey is no two-dancer. He's a slugger. It should be only a matter of time until he wades into them. It might be somewhere after a bow. For that strong Japanese base is a fair on our side, threatening as it does both our new Guinea and our Solomon's air bases, as well as our supply line. Halsey cannot very well hook further north until that strong point is eliminated. Remember what Bile has had quite a posting from the air this past week. This is Wadley Edwards at Pearl Harbor. We return you to CBS in New York. For the first time in three months, the Germans are making claims of victories on the Russian front. Today, the German High Command says the strategic Soviet rail centers of Lazovaya and Kramatorsk have been recaptured by Nazi troops. These enemy claims are entirely unconfirmed from any other source. On the contrary, an early morning Russian communique reporting on the fighting in the Donetsk Basin pictures a severe defeat for German tank columns. It says the Germans have been beaten back with heavy losses in a great tank battle southwest of Kramatorsk. Later word from Moscow makes little mention of the situation in the Donetsk. However... It's known that the Nazis have been making a determined effort to stem the Russian drive toward the Dnieper defense line. And perhaps they've been successful in slowing the Red Army advance in that sector. Russia's midday communique reports that the Soviets have occupied a number of populated places west of Kharkov. It also claims the capture of a large town west of Kursk and several places in the Kuban region. Thawing mud is said to be delaying operations around Novorossiysk, where the Russians are trying to wipe out a pocket of surrounded Nazi troops. Moscow says artillery exchanges are featuring the action west of Rostov and that big Russian guns have demolished dozens of blockhouses and dugouts. On the Orel front, anchor point of the German defense in the central and southern sectors north of Kursk, the Germans claim that their encircling operations are proceeding according to schedule. For their part, the Germans, summarizing the day's operations, claim Russian attacks were repulsed north of Novorossiysk, south of Lake Ilmen, southwest of Kursk, and in the Orel sector and they claim continued success in the Izum area southeast of Kharkov. 
In Western Europe, British bombers have kept up their steady round-the-clock attacks on targets in Western Germany. For that news and other developments in Great Britain, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS London, Bob Trout reporting. London. Royal Air Force Bomber Command planes were out last night attacking targets in western Germany and laying mines in enemy waters. So far, we've had no word of daylight operations today. But up to last night, United States 8th Air Force bombers, along with the Royal Air Force bombers, fighters, and fighter bombers, had kept up the round-the-clock offensive from this island base for 60 hours. During those 60 hours... The Allied operations included the 8th Air Force daylight attacks on Wilhelmshaven and Brest, and the heavy Royal Air Force night raids on Cologne and Nuremberg, as well as such operations as four different raids on the docks at Dunkirk. Today, the Germans announced that tomorrow will be Luftwaffe Day, and to celebrate it, Goering issued an order of the day saying, the German Air Force has paved the way for tremendous victories. What could not overthrow us has only strengthened us. There's no report of any German Air Force activity over Britain today. Eighth Air Force bomber crews, who bombed German harbor installations in the French port of Brest yesterday in daylight, are still praising the work of the escorting Royal Air Force Spitfires. Three of these spits were lost, but so well did the fighters do their essential job of protecting the bombers that not a single bomber is missing and no member of the American bomber crews reported seeing more than five German fighters at any one time. London understands that in central Tunisia, the enemy is still withdrawing, but we don't know just how far he has now withdrawn. Today, a writer in a responsible London paper, discussing the slow, long-drawn-out business of conquering Tunisia, says our strategy there must strike people as curiously planned. We seem to plod hesitantly and even to wait for the enemy. So, this paper goes on, it appears possible that we were inviting the enemy to come take his chance in Tunisia. It may be that we were quite ready to use Tunisia as a large-scale diversion. It's certain that at least one of the three panzer divisions, formerly stationed in northern France, is now in Tunisia. And it may be assumed that we prefer to see it there, even if it does make itself rather a nuisance at times. Next, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS New Delhi, William Fisher of Time Magazine reporting. This is William Fisher, from Delhi, India. We have been in the of India. The Hatchet Gandhi Park, the Indians of India, has been the greatest episode in modern history. In many of them, he has destroyed his second Buddha. A man remarkably combining political genius with a type of spiritual greatness that has an almost universal appeal in this country. Everywhere in the land, prayers have been said for him. Countless numbers of Hindus have undertaken symbolic fasts in his honor. In busy bazaars, workaday life has sometimes come to a standstill. And his ordeal has been reflected in the drawn, saddened faces of Indians. A few days ago, leaders from all parts of India gathered in Delhi. These included speech. We are sorry that atmospheric conditions make it impossible to bring you further the report from New Delhi. However, from Bombay, we have word that the condition of Mohandas Gandhi, now on the 19th day of his 21-day fast, is improved. Here in our New York studios is Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. It seems probable that one of the decisive battles of the war is now raging on the muddy plains of Russia between the Donets and the Dnieper, 
and on the northern fringe of the Danish Basin. Threatened with a disaster exceeding that of Stalingrad, a disaster from which the Wehrmacht might never have fully recovered, the Germans put in their main reserve, or a substantial part of it, at the 11th hour. According to Russian reports, they threw 30 fresh divisions, including a good many armored troops and picked units of the Waffen-SS, into the fight. And for the moment, at least, the Germans have stopped the Russian drive for the crossings of the Dnieper and are holding fast to their positions in the Donetsk Basin itself with their vital railway communications. Strategically, the German position in this area still remains critical, and the Donetsk area will continue to be a dangerous salient unless the Germans can retake Kharkov, which seems improbable. The German effort at the moment is just to check a Russian offensive, which, had it continued with a few more miles, would have cut off perhaps 500,000 German troops and restored the Russians to full possession of the Donetsk Basin and probably the Crimea as well. From another Allied battle zone, North Africa, we've been hearing much lately about the activities of the new American M4 tank. Admiral Radio takes you now to an M4 tank at the Aberdeen Proving Ground in Maryland. Bill Slocum, Jr., reporting. I'm sitting now in an M4 tank, and in a minute we'll go bouncing along on a rather rugged test run, which will be concluded in two minutes or sooner, depending entirely upon the resiliency of my molars. Big as the M4 is, I'm convinced. It is nothing more nor less than an improvement on the old circus stunt, wherein 30 clowns piled out of an automobile built for four. There is within this 30-ton monster a revolving turret holding a 75-millimeter cannon, three men, shells, three machine guns, hand grenades, and radio gear. Below them are two more men and a terrifically large transmission. The tank runs up to 30 miles an hour, and it not only can hit the side of a brick wall, it can go right through it. For all its compactness, I noticed that the crewmen get around inside it like eels in a bucket, and none of them were ever in any danger of being classified for us. We're all wearing Buck Rogers crash helmets, and the tank is heavily padded. Wherever padding will not interfere with its main job, which is the rapid movement of firepower over any terrain. Here at Aberdeen, they have a bit of terrain designed to test a tank's toughness and a man's bridge work, and we're going to have a go at it right now. battle, these tanks are sealed pretty tightly, and the men use periscopes for steering and for aiming. They are so set that if a bullet should hit once, it would destroy the periscope, but do no damage to the man on the other end of it, and a spare periscope should be inserted immediately. Down in front with me are driver and assistant driver, who doubles in grass with a machine gun, and the turret, which is neatly divided by the breach of a 75 millimeter cannon, is the tank commander who rides with his head out as long as that is healthy, and a loader and a neighbor. We're marching along now. The crew rides the bumps with ease, enjoying what is a comparatively mild ride, and wondering which will get first, my crash helmet or the roof of this tank. This is the same tank our boys are using in Africa. Thank you. 
their graduate school to test here at Aberdeen. So it seemed a fair question when I asked Major General Charles T. Harris Jr., the boss here, what he thought of the weapons we were sending our fighting men. General Harris surveyed an interesting collection of captured Axis material and said, I think our stuff is the best in the world. And I would like to add my unqualified endorsement of the crash helmet used by tank troops. I return you now to CBS in New York and Doug Edwards. Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Washington. Lee White reporting. American dive bombers in the Solomons have set afire a Japanese troops transport and one of two escorting corvettes, the Navy's just announced. And there's been yet another bombing of the Munda Airdrome on New Georgia Island. Today, the War Labor Board changed its mind and held an emergency meeting on the subject of wages at the Boeing Flying Fortress plant in Seattle. The union, meanwhile, has called off its threatened walkout. But this isn't likely to placate Congress. Tomorrow, two anti-strike bills will be introduced, and the Naval Committee plans to hear Captain Eddie Rickenbacker on the subject of absenteeism. Yesterday, Captain Rickenbacker's views on the subject caused the National Maritime Union to accuse him of trying to drive a wedge between our soldiers and workers. Thus, the Battle of Washington enters its fourth week, and it's begun to take on the aspects of a fight against labor unions as well as against the New Deal. I now return you to CBS New York. Here in our New York studios is war correspondent Joe James Custer of the United Press. Just back from the Pacific, Joe is one of the reporter casualties of this war. He was aboard our heavy cruiser Astoria in the Battle of Savo Island in the Solomons. He was hit by shrapnel and one of his eyes was injured. Now he's back in the United States for medical treatment and probably pretty happy to be back. Just a minute, Doug. I'm happy, all right, but I want to get this bum eye fixed and get back out there. That's the spirit, Joe. And speaking of spirit, what about our boys out there with the Pacific Fleet? You've lived and fought with them. You can take it from me, Doug. They're tops. On a warship out there, you come to have a tremendous respect for the American sailor. I can certainly tell you some proud stories about the cruiser Astoria and her men. With the ship aflame and under enemy fire, those boys did a job just as they had been trained. When our water pumps had been made useless, a sailor dived over the side into the shark-infested waters and pushed the raft alongside the ship. A shark came for him. He jumped on the raft and wrapped the shark over the head with a two-by-four and again pushed the raft into position so the pumps could be used for fire hoses. Then there was a skipper of another cruiser I'll never forget. His Filipino mess steward couldn't swim. So the skipper told the boy to hold on to his ankles while he swam them both to a nearby destroyer. And we think point rationing is tough. And remember, Doug, what I'm telling you is every day run of the mine heroism among our Navy men. Why, our captain was wounded 11 times on that bridge. At least a half dozen men around him were killed. Shells tore through the superstructure and shrapnel spattered like hail on a tin roof. And here's what the captain told me later. There we were, he said, with the ship a mass of flames and our power shot away, our water pumps useless, our guns destroyed, and the Jap ship with her searchlight on us firing away. We were dead in the water and helpless. I asked the captain what he did then, and this is what he replied. I thought of all the wounded men on the forecastle and below decks, and I prayed. I prayed to God to stop it. Just then one of our guns, which had been out of action, suddenly fired. And the Jap searchlight went out, and suddenly it was all over. And, Doug, our boy's sense of humor never... 
I recall once when we had dispersed 27 Jap bombers and learned that another wave was on its way to attack us. We got ready, and our guns were ready and manned. And while we waited, one of our gunners pulled a harmonic out of his pocket and began playing, There's No Place Like Home. Thank you, Joe James Custer of the United Press. Here's wishing you a speedy recovery. Now, here's a message from our sponsor. If you find it difficult to buy tubes for your radio, remember this. In 1943, the armed forces alone will need six times as much radio equipment as, as was manufactured for all purposes in 1941. This means Admiral, for example, must work at full capacity just to keep up with production on military requirements. And since military requirements come first, civilian orders have to be set aside. Every American appreciates the spirit behind such a policy. But you can protect your radio, and very simply... Ask your Admiral dealer to put your name down for regular service. He'll inspect your radio twice a year regularly and thus keep it always in tip-top condition, giving its best performance. If your Admiral dealer sees a tube, for example, growing weak, he'll be able to order a replacement in, in advance and more than likely have it in time to keep your radio in continuous action. You won't need to miss a single favorite program. Regular checkups made with the expertness which marks Admiral Dealers, are insurance that your radio will do its best for the duration. Call your Admiral Dealer for regular service tomorrow. You'll be glad you did. Going shopping tomorrow, make it a rule to take your change in war stamps. Remember this, only six twenty-five cent war stamps will buy a sub-zero combat helmet to protect an American boy. Take your change in war stamps every time even though you're subscribing to the 10% payroll allotment plan. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. Be sure to listen again next Sunday when Admiral brings you World News Today by shortwave direct from the leading news centers of the world. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The WBBM Air Theater Rigney Building, Chicago. Just two drops of Penetrol nose drops strike at the sneezy misery of your head cold. Their balanced medication soothes, helps open up cold-clogged nose passages, eases breathing. Use only as directed. Quality guaranteed by Plow Incorporated. Generous size, 25 cents. Even greater savings in large sizes. P-E-N-E-T-R-O, Penetrol nose drops. The time is 1.55. Luton's, makers of the world's largest-selling menthol cough drops, now introduce a second aid to cough relief. Luton's Honey Licorice Cough Drops, both medicated, five cents. WBBM, Chicago. <laughs> 